Welcome to Med, Medical Education for the Practicing Clinician. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Whittemore, a pediatrician with the University of Utah Health, and this podcast is brought to you by the University of Utah School of Medicine. This episode is going to be focused on medical student wellness, and with me today is Dr. Michelle Vo, who is an assistant professor at the University of Utah School of Medicine. Dr. Vo received her medical degree at Case Western Reserve University and then came to Utah to train in the triple board residency program in pediatrics, psychiatry, and child and adolescent psychiatry. And she is triple board certified in those three things. She is the early childhood psychiatry consult for the Utah Psychotropic Oversight Program, where she reviews and consults on evidence-based trauma-informed mental health treatment for children in state custody ages zero to six and supervises resident physicians, as well as being the co-course director for the Relationship Leadership Initiative. Since July 2015, Dr. Vo began her appointment as Director of Student Wellness in the School of Medicine, where she's helped build a multidisciplinary mental health and wellness program for medical students. So welcome, Dr. Vo. Thank you so much for having me and inviting me here. Why don't we start with, why don't you tell me about your position at the medical school as the director of student wellness? Happy to. What I find really exciting as a physician about this job is that I really do get to do evidence-based care in like a capitated environment in which like one of the reasons why we had to build a wellness program is because our students didn't have great access to mental health care. You probably know that Utah has extraordinarily high rates of depression, anxiety, and um, suicide among youth. And so um, knowing that was superimposed here in Utah upon like the national trend of increasing medical provider, physician, and medical trainee burnout and suicide. About five years ago, the School of Medicine decided to invest in building more integrated mental health team within the School of Medicine, specifically devoted to the students. Um, And in in this case, uh, what we mean is uh, undergraduate medical students, so physician students in our MD program. We leverage our university associations to be a clinical training site for a multidisciplinary team that includes like physicians who are MDs um, and DOs in the general psychiatry program Mm -hmm. um, so they can learn therapy and then um, master's level uh, social work students and um, PhD um, psychology students from main campus too. Um, So in addition to the trainees, we also have um, a handful of full and part-time clinical social workers that do therapy. So if that sounds like a big team to you, it's because it is. It's pretty Mm -hmm. humongous. I mean, I think just the number of um, people devoted to student wellness at the School of Medicine um, probably tells you a lot about how many students we serve. Um, I was just going to ask, do you, how about how many of students do you see of the whole medical student class? Yeah, you know, we're still trying to collect accurate data about this past year, but I think what I would say about um, this past year is that nothing was normal, and so um, whatever data we're able to cobble together about academic year 2019-2020 needs to be looked at with that lens of that was not a normal year. It was an aberrant year. (laughs) Right, sure. uh, 
characterized by a lot of distress. But uh, most recent data trends, um, we served over half the student body in individual services um, in academic year 2018, 2019, the previous year. So approximately 56 students, or 56% of students. Wow. Student body is like about like 420, 450-ish. You also have to like recognize that here in Utah, we have a unique population of students so much like many of them are married and right. then have families of their own. Right. And those families also don't have great access to mental health care. So we try to prioritize those um, individuals as well. But the student body itself, like we saw over half the student body. And that's um, as either individual therapy or you saw them as a medical provider? Yes. So, I mean, we do things, yeah, like we do a lot of different um, interventions or preventive programming is what I would call the rest of our services. But the individual counseling is by far our most engaging and in-demand service. Um, the students really appreciate having somebody to speak with and get counseling from um, that understands, you know, the structure of medical education and is like devoted to their population. And then, yeah, it's either um, a counseling appointment or an appointment with me for medication management. Sometimes they'll meet with me for like treatment planning. So as you know, like I'm I always joke and say that I'm a pediatrician that was sort of socialized to become a psychiatrist, but like at my very heart, I really am a primary care doctor. Um, and so a lot of times I'll see students um, for kind of like general well-being questions because it's fairly easy to get in to see me, which is ironic because I'm a fairly specialized physician, but this is the type of care I always wanted to provide. And so um, over the years, like, been able to like, I don't know, start engaging with students about some really kind of interesting pathology. I had like one student that I sent for a sleep study that ended up being diagnosed with narcolepsy. Yeah. And like, that tells you a lot about how strong our <laughs> physicians and physicians in training are. Like that student was like a clinical student. She made it all the way through most of her medical education falling asleep on rounds practically. So like looking at it from that lens of resilience is really, really important to me because I know the stories of so many of these students, the things that they deal with are really human, important things. Right. And medical things. So. And do you have a limit? like the number of times you can see them or that the therapist can see them, then do you do refer out to the community or do you just keep it within the wellness program? No, I mean, we really try to be very evidence-based about what we do. Like, we are very fortunate that we don't have any limits imposed upon us, um, like some other structures might impose upon mental health systems. Um, so, you know, you really can go through the process as I think it was meant to run, which is that you go through a diagnostic process you engage in multidisciplinary treatment planning and you engage in a multidisciplinary treatment plan that's integrated into your community. Mm. And it's not about a set limit because not one size fits all, like no treatment or intervention is one size fits all. Mm. Um, we're just very aware of when we don't have the expertise. So for example, like if somebody needs a very specialized therapy, we're lucky that we have like a network that we can coordinate to get somebody habit reversal therapy for ticks 
or you know, dialectical behavior therapy for um, self-harm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, goodness forbid, but it often happens, like if somebody requires hospitalization, um, we can facilitate and coordinate that as well. Mm-hmm. Often that does mean we do refer to someplace that can take care of a student that is dealing with that type of acuity. Right. And this is all free for the students, right? Well, I mean, they do pay tuitions. <laughs> and that is true. And that is a lot of money. <laughs> so um, I think of it as like, it's an investment that's like capitated and built into their medical education. Because I think that's like kind of something that not even like our generation of physicians really benefited from. This yeah. idea that like you care for yourself so you can care for others. That's something that I think is really, really important. And we're constantly striving to integrate that mindset into medical education at the University of Utah. And you mentioned preventative programming. Tell me a little bit more about what you guys do. Well, okay. So preventative programming used to be more robust when we could like gather. And Zoom is a little bit challenging. Um, And this has sort of evolved over the years as I think like our program has become more and more high profile within the School of Medicine and the student body. But in the beginning, it did look like um, kind of lunch and learn lectures, the same types of ones that a lot of student interest groups would sponsor. We would sponsor meditation. We would sponsor lectures from our medical experts on sleep or anxiety for test anxiety. So the types of themes that like we would sort of observe and then we were trying to be very like intentional about when we would do these things and how. And so, you know, there's kind of like these developmental milestones for the students to use medical jargon, like highest yield developmental Mm -hmm. milestones, where it's Mm -hmm. like, you know, the first years come in, there's inevitably a transitional period. They often all experience a little bit of that transitional anxiety that they recognize as imposter syndrome. So there have been a couple of years they've done imposter syndrome Mm -hmm. lectures in the fall. And then we try to pay attention. So Right now, our preventive programming does not look like lunch lectures because it's not safe to have lunches. Right. Um, Together, anyway. You know, right now, it's about, you know, working with our partners in curriculum and student affairs about some of the, like, common reasons why students experience distress. So things like professionalism, building out the interventions for professional growth and right now it because of you know the high profile anti-racism commission that the students demanded that Dr. Good form but then Dr. Good like responded by creating an anti-racism commission and so right. working alongside and with those interventions to ensure that equity and inclusion are values that we explicitly teach and uh, exhibit as medical professionals. So, I mean, that's kind of exciting stuff. It feels really meaningful um, that it's constantly evolving just like medicine does. I mean, I think that's why I always tell the students we have a great job. Mm, Yeah. And what I was reading about, you know, the rates of depression and anxiety are like about four times the national average in medical students. Do you find that it's the same at the University of Utah? Or do you think that this, the rates have changed with your, all your programming? Or is that it's impossible? Really, to it's really hard to track because yeah. we use so many trainees in our treatment and evaluation of the students. 
Yeah. Um, and also the students are protected population when it comes to, um, you know, the dean's office collecting data and doing research on them. And so I, I can't really speak to um, hard data and right. objective information in a way that I think I find scientifically useful. But I think that what we have tracked is uh, general rates of burnout in the student body just as like a quality improvement yeah. um, initiative. And so again, COVID derailed a lot of our collection of data this year, but the four years prior to that, we were consistently measuring burnout data in December of the last, like the four years previous to this last academic year. Right. Um, and they were trending significantly below the generally accepted national average for students. And so that comes from a 2008 study by um, uh, Dr. Derby and um, her team at Mayo Clinic. Um, and that most cited statistic is approximately 49% of students reported um, burnout um, in 2008, or in that study that was published in 2008 across um, several medical schools. And so that's sort of my benchmark when I'm thinking about like, how do our students compare? How does our program compare um, our burnout rate from like, let's see, I'm just trying to do some math. So it's like probably like 2014 through 2018, every December ranged between like 22 and 30, Three percent, I think, was our highest burnout rate, which I think is pretty—it's pretty good. It approximates um, the faculty and staff burnout rate that the Resiliency Center measures. So we all, you know, the Resiliency Center is uh, tasked with the well-being of staff and faculty, right. and then the GME Wellness Program um, also exists, and we, you know, work pretty closely together when we're trying to characterize our population at the University of Utah Health Sciences. Um, and for those who don't know, how do you define burnout? So burnout in this case is from like the validated measure, the Maslach Burnout Inventory or the MBI. It measures three different domains um, in personal achievement, emotional exhaustion, and depersonalization. Now, for any psychiatrists that are listening, depersonalization means something different to us in psychiatry than it does on this inventory. On this inventory, it means like kind of what I would call as a psychiatrist dehumanization. So the tendency to see your patients as, um, you know, having fewer characteristics of like uh, individual person or right. human being. Um, so in medical professionals, it's really important to recognize like we don't really measure or count personal achievement because like personal achievement is often one of the last things that go. For medical students, physicians, physicians in training, like that is not a valid thing that we can measure um, on this inventory. And so we only look at either emotional exhaustion or depersonalization data on this inventory as being high. That's generally the validated measure that people use in the literature to assess for burnout. That's and crazy it, that the national it, average is almost 50%. That's so high. <laughs> Yeah, of students. And so it's right. also really important to acknowledge that they've done this a lot more in residents because like the residents are employees and so they're not considered a protected class um, for research as much as the students. Um, and so the resident published data has a wider range and a more alarming range, like up to 70% in some studies. It's really important to acknowledge like burnout is like an epidemic of its own. And it's also really important because it's linked to as you said, like depression right. and suicide. 
how do you find that COVID has affected the students? I mean, everyone seems to be burnt out and having a hard time, to be honest with you. So I can't imagine it's been good. You know, in the beginning, I think you're right. Everybody was really, really struggling. Then there was like this really interesting phenomenon in which like, I think the virtual environment has impacted, and this is my tendency, as you know, to always try and look for the silver lining. And the silver lining for this particular situation is that our introverted students or our students that may be more susceptible to some of the effects of classroom microaggressions or like the stress contagion that I sometimes call it, like, you know, being kind of thrown in your preclinical years with a bunch of other high-performing, high-achieving, sometimes gunner people. So that stress contagion for some of our students seems to be mitigated because they're better able to set boundaries. And then the introverted students have a more wider variety of ways that they can shine and engage, and then they can disengage if they don't want to. And so like some of my introverted students were telling me, like, I'm living my best life in social isolation. Like, this is fine. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but that's good that there's a silver lining for some folks. I know, and that's what I said. And so, like, that's, I think, a really important reflection is that, like, you know, as therapists or as a physician, like, it's really important not to impose our own, like, personal experiences on the people right. that we serve. Because, like, can't make the assumption that everybody is struggling when, like, we are. Right. And you mentioned before about the diversity and inclusion. I was reading something about how the rates of mental health struggles amongst medical students who aren't people of, you know, the white majority is even more challenging. Have you found that at the University of Utah or has that been a concern? Yeah, there? there is definitely an overrepresentation of students who feel marginalized from the majority mm-hmm. who come and seek us out in the wellness program. And I don't think it's just the wellness program, just student services in general, I think I would say. That is certainly a trend that has always been part of addressing student wellness at the University of Utah. And I think that's why, like, when I have talked about preventive programming and, like, the evolution, like, that's something that so I got my legs under me and like realized, well, I started asking the question, like, why do so many students feel like they need to have therapy? Like, I really don't think that there's anything wrong with a lot of them, but it's obviously very distressing. And like, I'm so glad that they trust us with their care um, and, you know, help with management of that distress. But like, just like there were some trends, for example, speaking of diversity, when I first started in the wellness program, we used to have this like well-intentioned attendance policy that required every student to be in class. And then, you know, the way that they would take attendance is like electronically, you would like be in class and they would announce the attendance word and then you had to put it in the log on your iPad. And we had students that had recently had babies that needed to pump and couldn't take a break to do that. We had students that needed to pray because they were very devout Muslim during class and they didn't feel like they could do that. I actually like saw several students for headaches and I was like, why aren't you drinking water? Because then they'd have to pee and miss then they have to pee and like they would miss their, <laughs> their attendance word. So, you know, we noticed that trend. We reported it back in a way that people could hear it. And then like, you know, that policy ended up changing. So when I think about preventative programming, um, that's why I really do feel like, you know, partnering with our leadership 
and those who are tasked with diversity, equity, and inclusion at the University of Utah is like super critical to physician wellness because so much of it is intersectional. Um, and it's really important to be inclusive. So like that's kind of a fine line that we have to walk um, mm -hmm. in such like a charged divisive climate is that like, how do you do that and address things so that everybody, even our majority students, as well as our students that feel marginalized, like everybody feels like the wellness program is a program for everyone. Right. Do you think just your presence has helped to destigmatize the issue of mental health and trainees? I don't think I can take credit for all of that. I mean, I think like, you know, building a program that is an open door program with a welcome mat, like, mm -hmm metaphorically speaking, like, where it's like, all are welcome. And like, you know, everybody is aware of how many people seek out wellness. And wellness is like spoken of in the dean's office and among the students and among the faculty in the School of Medicine in the same breath as the other student services are, which I think is like, not directly my responsibility. It just has made it okay to speak of this distress. Um, and speak of the need to care for yourself and the speak of, I think the vulnerability associated with it. The vulnerability is the stickiest part. Nobody wants to feel like they're weak, mm -hmm. least of all are high-performing people. And so that's always something that we're always trying to address. And it would be great if we could just like run a lot of group therapy where everybody would realize like, oh, we all suffer from imposter syndrome in September, first year of medical school. Like this is like a shared humanity thing. Right. That the like stigma of vulnerability keeps them from doing it, doing that. And so hence we have like this huge therapist team. Right. Um, are you guys able to do any group therapy or is that not possible? We are trying it out in the time of COVID. Um, in the past, we would run like probably on average between like four to five to six-ish groups, depending on the themes that people were interested in mm -hmm. every semester. But group therapy and couples therapy are really hard to do on Zoom. And it's hard to ensure confidentiality of the space because it really is a treatment space for group therapy. So we're testing it out with like kind of some of the things that our students really, really want us to do, like diversity, and inclusion groups. I just am hesitating because I just don't know exactly how engaging they are or how effective they are in comparison to the gold standard of being in person. Right. And I think a lot of the listeners of this podcast are attending physicians who have medical students that work with them. I remember from my own time in medical school having some scary experiences where attendings would, you know, pimp you for certain things and that being very anxiety provoking. Do you feel like the culture of pimping has shifted at all since we were medical students? You and I both went to medical school outside of Utah. This is true. Yeah. <laughs> and I went in Canada, which is its own cultural difference. You know, I think at Utah, like it's maybe not quite as bad as it was where you and I went to medical school. It's very much more of a collaborative environment here in Utah, I think. Mm -hmm. And I think like the School of Medicine has really made it a priority to value our teachers and give them resources. So what I would say to our listeners, though, is that, like, yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of conversations about, like, 
intergenerational differences. I think that's something that like I've noticed about our students that like they're kind of that generation. And if you want to know more about this, this is kind of coming from like some of the thoughts that like Julie Liscott Haynes in her book, like How to Raise an Adult. So Julie, Dr. Liscott Haynes is former dean of freshmen at Stanford University. She wrote this wonderful book about um, the phenomenon of like helicopter or overparenting um, because she observed that in a lot of her students as dean of freshmen. And those students tend to be the same types of students that go to medical school. So like, they're very accustomed to very close guidance. And so I find this myself as like somebody that doesn't necessarily teach students because that's a conflict of interest, but I teach all of our child psychiatry residents and many of our triple board residents, as well as the general psychiatry residents that do therapy on our team. Is that like where like other people or other generations may value autonomy like I do? that sometimes makes our students really anxious. And so like, it's really important for our students and our teachers to model and practice like open and direct communication. I think that is something that I think I often coach both our students and our faculty and our residents about like, you know, we're so busy that sometimes one of the things that we take for granted is that like, we're on the same page and um, I'll give you an example. I'll de-identify it. Like this is like recently from Labor Day weekend. Um, one of our illustrious attendings, who's so brilliant, she texted me because she had told the student on her team to take Labor Day off. But then that student showed up anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and she didn't feel listened to and she was very frustrated with him. And he pulled the fellow on the team. I'm laughing because it's like, you know, like missed connection. Right. <laughs> you know? like, and the student was probably just thinking that he or she was being really, you know, working hard and making an example of look how I'm coming on a holiday and I should get points. Of, that was kind of part of my response. I was like, I think this student probably internalized the old adage that I myself had as a student, which is that you show up, you don't necessarily have any expertise to offer, but you have like your enthusiasm and your willingness to learn and work hard. And the way that you show that you work hard is you show up earlier than everybody else and you stay later than the rest of the team. Right. And um, you don't want to be thought of as lazy as the one who takes the day off when everyone right. else is there. Yeah. And this particular student, I think, like, also, like, told the resident, like, he wanted, he wanted more time with this attending who's, like, just, like, this very smart attending. So huh. he also wanted a letter. And, like, you know, part of that, too, is, like, that anxiety that, like, happens. Like, you know, these are students. This class of students was pulled from rotation in the middle of March when we were worried we didn't have enough um, personal protective equipment. And so like they feel shortchanged and you know there are concerns like at every level that they were. We all have like shorter clinical experiences and so you know you can see how that um, distress is kind of like sometimes like in a very stressful environment like like becomes like this really big deal um, and like creates a lot of distressing or uncomfortable feelings. Right, right. Can, is there anything else that our attending physicians other than direct and open communication should know when they're working with medical students in terms of helping to look out for their well-being of the medical students? The students are searching for models of humanity. Many of them still went to medical school because they're extraordinarily altruistic people um, who are very values driven. I think 
you know, in this time to choose to go to medical school when there's so many other options to be a caregiver and um, provide care for others with less debt and less training time. They're looking for the apprenticeship model that like medicine was built upon. Mm -hmm. um, and they really appreciate the modeling. Um, and so like what I would say to like attendings and residents um, who are interested in education and like how to address well-being is that like y'all don't have to take on the responsibility of doing therapy for somebody. The students may like kind of look to you with their like distress and like you may feel a pull to like care in that way. But like, you know, your job is to teach and model for them like what to do with difficult situations. And so taking in a, a time or a pause, that's something that's sometimes published in like medical humanities literature, taking a pause during difficult times and acknowledging goes a long way, just the acknowledgement, because we are so busy, we sometimes even forget to do that and say like, there was a death overnight. Um, and let's take a pause to honor that life before rounds, like 20 seconds. If that, because people are so uncomfortable with silence, <laughs> you know, right. taking that pause, I think makes a big difference. And like, you don't have to share details of your own life. And like, but like, I think like that selective um, acknowledgement of our shared humanity goes a long way with our mm -hmm. students. I think that's the other thing that I think I really do want to drive home is that like, you already have your own patients. Like don't turn the students into your patients. <laughs> like they don't have to be that way. Mm -hmm. And like you can share with them resources. So if you're at the University of Utah, you know that like we have this like robust wellness program. You don't even have to remember my name. Mm -hmm. You can tell the students to Google <laughs> University of Utah School of Medicine wellness program. Or you can, you know, if you're at a different school of medicine, likely you have some sort of resource in student affairs. Because one of the only reasons we exist in the school of medicine is that there is LCME. Eventually, um, accreditation requires that there's somebody on the team in the school of medicine that is responsible for your students' well-being. And um, it doesn't have to be you directly, but you can connect them just the same way you connect them with other resources in their learning. Mm -hmm. I, I really do think this is a really important piece of learning for our young physicians. This is hard to be a doctor right now. Um, right. And they have to learn how to self-manage. Totally true. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining me today. I think this is really interesting and um, people can learn a lot from you and from your program at the University of Utah. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. As always, please visit our website to find information on obtaining CME credit for listening to the podcast, as well as to find pertinent journal articles on the topics discussed. Thanks.